Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, January 22nd. I'm Andrew Walworth. I'll start by paraphrasing my friend Carl Cannon, who said about this week's inaugural, 48 years after he was first sworn in as a U.S. Senator, 33 years after his first presidential campaign dissolved, 12 years after Barack Obama gave him the consolation prize of the vice presidency with the understanding that he'd never run again, and 14 days after the U.S. Capitol was stormed by a mob determined to keep him out of the White House, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. took the oath of office as the 46th U.S. President of the United States. And it all took place against a backdrop of a capital and a capital city under what looked to many like martial law, with a closely divided Congress, a now former president facing a Senate trial for impeachment, and questions about what constitutes national unity in these divided times. Joining me to discuss all this are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics. Tom Bevan is co-founder and president, Carl Cannon is Washington bureau chief, and Susan Crabtree, national political correspondent. So Tom, this word unity, it's a bit of a Rorschach test these days. What is unity? Why do we want it? And do you think Joe Biden is getting us closer to it? Good questions. Unity is the harmonious living together of, <laughs> you know, partisans. Um, look, the country is very divided, and, and that's no surprise. I think Biden struck the right notes of unity during his speech, although actions speak louder than words. So we'll see what he does and what he can do to really demonstrate demonstrate unity. The fact that he sat down at a desk with a stack of executive orders and repealed most of Trump's agenda is what presidents do these days, like it or not. I don't think, you know, people are saying, well, that wasn't unifying for him to, you know, repeal this and repeal that. But that's how that's how our presidents operate these days. And you can bet your bottom dollar the next time a Republicans in the White House, they will sit down and do the exact same thing. I'm not sure he's going to be able to generate unity legislatively, right, by pushing a stimulus package that has components to it that Republicans disagree with or immigration reform that doesn't have any border security involved and shortens the pathway to citizenship from 13 to eight years. So where is this unity going to come from other than platitudes coming out of his mouth? Um, Part of it will be attitude and the fact that he just respects Republicans and will talk to them in a fair and gracious manner, which I suspect he will. But at the end of the day, you know, what can he do to really bring the parties together? I'm not sure there's there's a whole lot. I mean, the one thing would be to tell Schumer and Pelosi to stand down on the on the impeachment. But he's given no indication that he's going to do that. His spokesperson has been asked that question two two times at least in the first two press conferences and and really sidestepped it and, and gave no indication that that's where the president wants them to go. Carl, I think a lot of people might say, I'm for civility, I'm for fair play, I'm for the rule of law, but but unity implies something more than that. And, and it's not necessarily a goal in and of itself, or at least we don't want to require it in all things. A little diversity of thought isn't all that bad after all. But having said that, do you think Biden can pull this off? Well, I don't know if he can pull it off. You know, George, George W. Bush ran on this. Uh, it was his main thing he ran on. Uh, Barack Obama promised to do it. It's not, you know, Trump certainly didn't, but but you, you can't just hope that the two parties won't become polarized anymore. They're as polarized as they've been in a century. And, and you know, we live in pol- very polarized times. I think the first step for Biden is an easy one. It's to not make his personality exacerbate 
the real polarization exists between the two parties. This is what Donald, this is where Donald Trump, I, I won't say he failed, he didn't really even attempt to do it, but Trump seemed to make a bad situation worse if you care about polarization. And, and Biden seems to understand that. But as Tom said, you know, there, there are limitations. He says over and over again, uh, I'll work as hard for the people who supported me as the people who didn't, who didn't support me as the people who did. Well, his party wouldn't let him do that. And, you know, Tom suggests that he, 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 could, he could pressure uh, Schumer and McConnell and Pelosi to drop impeachment, but he'd be picking a fight with his own, I don't want to say the left wing of his party, the base of his party, that's probably 50% of his party, uh, right out of the chute. He doesn't want to do that either. What he really wants to do uh, is be left alone by his own party and and the Republicans so he can address this COVID disaster. That's what he really wants to do. Um, and I don't, But I don't know if either party is going to let him do that. Susan, the line that stuck out, or at least that a lot of critics pointed to, was when Biden said this. He said, I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real, but I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we are all created equally and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. Is that really a good way to describe today's political divisions? And and what did you make of the speech overall? Well, I was generally impressed by the speech. Um, there were moments that I thought were not congruent with his this whole theme of unity and a little too hot for um, TV and a little too hot for a speech that was supposed to compel everyone to stand down and join forces and beside the extremism um, and the demonizations. That particular line was one of them. I think I tweeted out something like, you know, let's not talk about something that's so divisive. We still have riots in the streets over racial issues right now. And it was a big flashpoint during the campaign. If you look at uh, his spokesman, Jen Psaki, uh, she was asked, what actions does Joe Biden plan to take? Actual concrete actions, not just words, to bring the country together and unify. And she did not have a really good answer for that at all. And in fact, um, one person today, one reporter asked whether even provides kind of fig leaf, like nominate a Republican to a cabinet post like President Obama did with the Ray LaHood. I remember that very distinctly because I broke that story back back in the day. You know, Ray LaHood was actually not a uh, traditional Republican. He was, uh, so it was sort of a fig leaf because he was always giving his leadership a hard time and bucking his leadership, but at least he was a Republican in name. So, you know, there were some overtures there. We're not seeing that as of yet from the Biden administration. And so I think it could go a long way to if he would nominate someone to show that he he has some concrete action behind these words. Let me add some because Susan's right about that. You know, John F. Kennedy, Bill Clinton, um, George W. Bush actually put members of the opposite party in their cabinet. And, you know, this is this is something you could do. He, I, I don't know that Biden's even considered it. But, Tom, you know, I did see a poll, an Ipsos poll, uh, 72% of Republicans, according to Ipsos, thought the president's inaugural address was good, uh, three-quarters of independents. Uh, same time, 46% of Republicans believed the president's statement when he said he wanted to be a president for all Americans. 
And just about 39% took him in his word when he said he would always level with Americans. Um, but still, I'm struck by that first number. I mean, if 72% of, uh, the, of Republicans approved of the speech, he must have done something right. Yeah, what's your beef, Tom? <laughs> I don't have a beef. I thought it was a fine speech. I, I was not, you know, I was a little, uh, I was going to say surprised, but maybe I shouldn't. I mean, every time I say that, I'm like, you're so naive that the press was so overflowing. You know, Chris Wallace, this was the greatest speech I've heard since, you know, John F. Kennedy in 61. And John Hyam was like, oh, this was, you know, it wasn't quite Lincoln's second inaugural, but that's what it was aspiring to be. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. It was a fine speech. He struck the right notes. It was very folksy and Joe Biden, and particularly for Biden, who's not a great orator, I thought he meant the moment. And that's fine. I, you know, I, I do understand the criticism that, you know, from the line that you pointed out, um, that it was, and to Susan's point, it was incongruous at times because it kind of had that attitude like, I'm all for working with, with everyone as long as they're doing, you know, going in the direction that I want them to. And we're all, you know, we're all on board with the, this is a racist, you know, systemically racist country and we've got a lot of work to do to fix it and all that. Um, so, but, but again, words are words. And, and the question is what actions does he take that makes those 74 million people who voted for Trump, whether they voted for Trump because they liked Donald Trump or because they didn't like Joe Biden or didn't like Democrats or didn't want Democrats to have control of the government or whatever the case may be, what is he going to do to bring those folks along? And, you know, I, I've been watching the press briefings and Susan's right. I mean, Jen Psaki's answers are kind of pathetic, which is, uh, you know, someone asked her, I think it was, I think it was Michael Shear, the New York Times, where, where is the fig leaf? Where is the olive, olive branch? Because we haven't really seen much of anything. And, and she was kind of like, well, it's in the COVID package. Like, do Republicans not want unemployment insurance? And do Republicans not want, you know, vaccine distribution? And it's kind of like, really, that's your definition of, of bipartisanship and outreach is like, if Republicans don't want those things, then they're against those. I mean, so they've really set up sort of a straw man, if you will, that that they're using as as you know to 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 feign bipartisanship without actually having any sort of again beyond the words and beyond Joe Biden being. I think I do think he is a creature of the Senate. I think he respects the institution. He like has a lot of friends over there. He's gonna he's going to talk to them and and work with them to a certain degree, but. At the end of the day, what, what gets done that, that is a quote-unquote compromise that brings Republicans along? I don't, I don't see much of anything at this point. Carl, let's just switch to uh, COVID for a second here. Do- Dr. Fauci was on television and saying he felt liberated uh, that he could speak about science now. Uh, what do you make of that? And, you know, is that – it's amazing to me that he's lasted as long in Washington as he has. But um, – yeah, it's a, it's incredible. But uh, what do you make of this? And is it is there really a turning the page here? And then I want to ask you about a hundred million shots. Yeah, I've known Fauci, and I don't say we're friends or anything. But I first interviewed him in the early '80s when I was working at the San Jose Mercury News, and uh, this AIDS story was a big story. And Fauci was the guy even then who was the government's the, the premier virologist, and he. You know, he's always been a person who's willing to tell the truth. What, but I, but I watched him. He's rarely surprised me. I mean, the fact that he couldn't throw a baseball surprised me. It was the weirdest opening pitch I've ever seen. But, but he he surprised me a little bit on Thursday because 
he was, he was, he's, you know, he was, he seemed relaxed. He seemed 10 years younger than he had been a month ago. The lines, somehow, you, you see these weird commercials. It's not Botox. It's something that you put on your face. It's like that had happened to him. <laughs> he had li- lines in his face were gone. He was smiling. He was saying the same stuff he'd said before. And he, it was interesting. He said, yeah, I, I, I you know, he, he indicated he was free to talk now. But then somebody pushed back and said, well, okay, but what was it that you should have told us before that you didn't? You know, yeah. he said, oh, no, no, I always told the truth. I, I never. And so he, he kind of wanted it both ways. But what I heard him saying there was that he didn't have to worry what he was saying. He could get up there and give the briefing and he didn't have to worry. There was this disembodied voice. The guy, you know, who when Sean Spicer came back, you know, in those early days of the Trump presidency, Trump would yell at and scream at him. What do you mean Obama's crowds were bigger than mine? No way. Get back out there and tell him. What Fauci seemed to be saying is he could tell the truth and not worry about the repercussions. It's actually pretty important. And, and I, you know, I covered the White House for 15 years, so maybe I put too much stock in it. But that's what I saw. What, what Fauci was up there doing was saying, I'm able to communicate freely with you. I'm able to say what's on my mind and not worry about getting second guessed. And and that, that Biden will be transparent. He even said, if things aren't working, we'll tell you. We'll tell you when we did something that didn't work. Hmm. That was that was refreshing. Um, so, Tom, uh, what do you make of the COVID plan so far? And I was under the impression that 100 million vaccines in 100 days meant 100 million people. Uh, apparently, I was wrong, so I should it's correct it. From a math we- problem, Andy. I understand. <laughs> it's two <laughs> shots, so it's only, but it's only fifty. So it's fifty million people. Now that doesn't sound like that unreasonable a goal, and is actually, as I understand it, is not that much more than we're doing right now. Well, but do you remember on our show last week? I'm, I'm cutting Tom off. I'm sorry, but you said Tom said, "What if it's only seventy-five million? Will we say he's failed?" Uh, guess what, Tom. He only has to get to fifty million. <laughs> Can you first of all let's just let's just pause a beat and and imagine how the press would react if Donald Trump said, "Oh, by the way, it's just fifty million because it's two it's two doses." People, come on! I mean, it's ridiculous. I called okay. up Glenn Kessler and I put that question to him. <laughs> he said four hundred Pinocchios. <laughs> right. I do think. You know, Carl made the point, and which was well taken last week, which is it's less about the numbers of doses; it's about the death toll. Is it going down? And 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 that's very much reminiscent of our our engagement in the Iraq War or whatever. It was like, how many people? You know, are the are the are the newspapers continuing to lead with three thousand dead or four thousand dead, or does it go down to ten or twenty or whatever? Um, that will relieve the political pressure on Joe Biden much more than the number of doses will. So I think Carl made a good point there, and I, I, I believe that to be true. That being said, you know, he's set these metrics for himself and for his administration, and, it's, it's, and now they're kind of trying to move the goalposts a little bit. And they said, well, today there was the, oh, we have no vaccine distribution plan, none whatsoever. It's just a complete mess. I mean, so there's this whole effort to, to basically say, is this a family podcast? This is, a, you know, they say this is a shit show, okay, and, and we're fixing it. Um, it's not, and- a, it's not, a, it's not a family show anymore. Thanks, to- <laughs> <laughs> right? 
slap a go out in the cul-de-sac and cover the ears of <laughs> slap, slap a PG fourteen rating on this one, would you? Um, no, but I mean, look, this is all this is all involves politics, right? And and setting expectations so they can exceed them, walking them back when they've overcommitted, you know, yada yada yada. So I, I don't think it's insignificant that the press is going to be a um, uncritical. Uh, observer of this and not in the same way i was going to say is sort of an a witting accomplice that might be a little harsh but uh, you can already sort of tell that this administration is certainly not going to be held to the same standards that the trump administration was was held to for for four years and and part of that was because trump would would lie and say things that were untrue and so you couldn't trust the things that came out of his mouth so there was a really interesting question that was asked at thursday's press briefing by peter ducey which was Joe Biden signed an executive order mandating masks be worn on federal property for, you know, for the entire country, for everybody. And just hours later, his entire family was standing at the Lincoln Memorial unmasked celebrating. And so, you know, he posed that question to Jen Psaki and her response was, well, they were celebrating. I mean, really, that's that's the standard. That's the response that you're going to give, which is effectively sort of, you know, lockdowns for thee, but not for me, uh, you know, rules for thee, but not for me. So she seemed unpre- strangely unprepared. For that. She did seem unprepared strangely. for that, and I thought it was a it was a great question, um, mm-hmm. and probably the only tough question she's gotten so far. So uh, look, I, I go back to what you said though about the death toll because that that's the key thing. Forty four hundred Americans died on January twentieth, two thousand twenty one, the highest death toll during the whole pandemic in a year. That number has to start going down. If it doesn't, I believe the press will ask tough questions of the of Joe Biden. Susan, you buy that? Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> it was interesting to me Thursday that Peter Ducey, I thought he was the one that asked another tough question um, that got uh, Biden, uh, you know, angry when he was saying that, oh, you know, aren't you already, aren't we already on pace to reach that hundred million? And Boy, did he get a reaction from Joe Biden? He said, "Well, the press actually—it was—it wasn't actually Fox News. It was actually um, Zeke Miller of the AP." Uh, when I went out back and checked it, and so yes, I do think that it's going to matter. The coronavirus is really how they handle this. Is really it's going to be the first test of the the Biden administration. And it was funny because I saw a conservative website saying, "You know, here are the deaths so far of the uh, during the Biden administration." Uh, so, yes, the conservative press is going to give him a hard time about the number of deaths. But already uh, Fauci is sort of lowering the bar for expectations. I thought it was very interesting when Fauci on Thursday's press conference said, I think once we get into the end of the summer, if we hit these, it's a very realistic goal to have the 100 million in 100 days. And when we get to the end of summer, we might begin to think about normalcy in the fall. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I thought we were going to be partying and having celebrations. Let me just say I'm very, very happy. And it's a huge, to me, it's a huge uh, relief because my parents just got vaccinated for the first vaccination today and they had no adverse reactions. And it, and I will tell you, it is a sense of relief. But who it gets to take credit for that on the first day of the Biden administration? Um so I think we have to, again, Fauci is lowering expectations. The Biden administration is lowering expectations for when we will get back to normal. 
And even um, Biden himself was still talking about, we're still in the winter of this. We're still in this dark winter and we're going to have more deaths before we start, before they start decreasing. Uh, you know, we've, got, we've just got a few minutes left. I just want to talk about one other thing. And uh, Carl, that's, that's the Senate. Uh, Chuck Schumer is now uh, leader of the Senate. Um, what kind, how's he different than McConnell? How, how's this going to sort of shape into a, you know, a, a different dynamic? And, and also with McConnell and Biden, you know, two, two real creatures of the Senate. Um, it's going to be a very different kind of dynamic, isn't it? They're both very partisan guys, you know. And they, they both do care about the Senate. They, they're protective of the institution. There's one, you know, one's liberal, one's conservative. But the big difference right now that interests me is I think Chuck Schumer is looking over his shoulder. He fears being challenged but from the left in a primary in two years, maybe by AOC, maybe by someone else. And this is not something Mitch McConnell never worried about that. We would write the we would write these breathless stories every six years how this was the year he's going to get knocked off. Never happened. Never came close to happening. And McConnell certainly never worried about it. And that that alters the dynamic. McConnell's knows knows because it, it was true for John Boehner too. If you can't control your flank, you can't really deliver on your promises. And so I think what McConnell will be watching is to see if what Chuck Schumer says he's going to do something, he really follows through. And I don't mean he'd be negotiating in bad faith. I mean, he'd go back to his lieutenants and his captains and he'd say, okay, here's what I told McConnell. And they said, well, okay, if you do that, uh, you know, moveon.org is going to have a petition for you, you know, for you to be recalled tomorrow. And so, you know, the left is very restive right now. They're very, they're powerful. Bernie Sanders is the new, I think he's the budget, he's going to be the budget committee chairman. True. You know, this is, Schumer's got to watch his flank as well as worry about McConnell and, and, and Joe Manchin and, you know, he's got to deliver all his votes every time because they've only got 50 of them. Kamala Harris would have to break any tie. So he's got to do something that will please both Joe Manchin and AOC. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, yeah, I, I, Schumer is up in, in two years. He's, he's got to run 2022, 20, right? Yeah, so, I mean, think about that. That, that He's got to really thread the needle. And yeah. so McConnell, you know, McConnell could, could help him do some of this. Uh, be a foil for him. He could go back to his left, say that's all I could get out of McConnell, uh, and because Joe, you know, they don't want Joe Manchin to become a Republican. So it's it's an interesting. It'll actually be interesting. And my assumption is that Schumer and McConnell will deal with each other in good faith while trying to you know cover their own ass. Tom, what do you think? I think we got to up it to an R rating now. That's no, I think Carl makes a good point. Uh, it is going to be. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, too. This is her last tenure as Speaker, but she's managing a very thin majority in the House of Representatives. And so she's got her hands full, and and certainly Chuck Schumer has his hands full. As they try and push through this agenda, which, you know, beyond the COVID stimulus package, which, again, I don't even know that it has Republican support, and maybe they can strip, them, strip some things out or narrow it down or do whatever <clears> – <throat> Beyond that, you know, what are they going to do on on infrastructure? Reform, They're going to do infrastructure. Is, <laughs> infrastructure, please. Um, <laughs> immigration reform can't get sixty votes for that in the Senate. So what are you going to do? Well, come. Are they going to use brute political force and and blow up the legislative filibuster and just start jamming stuff through? And and is Joe Manchin willing to go along with that and 
the Green New Deal and statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico and, you know, packing the Supreme Court? Like how far, how many things is, is Joe Manchin going to be willing to go forward on? Um, so I think it is, I think it is going to be really tough for, and, and the bad news for Democrats, and this was always the argument or one of the arguments that we made prior to the Georgia elections is, might actually be better for Joe Biden if they lost those, because then he could at least run against a Republican Senate. He's not even going to be able to do that in two years. And so that presents um, <laughs> presents a, a very tricky political situation for the Democratic Party and, and all of the reps that are going to be up in two years and folks like Chuck Schumer and the other senators that are going to be up for re-election in 2022. So, Susan, let's just talk about that filibuster for one second, then we've got to, we've got to wrap this up. But do you think that the, uh, that the Democrats will push to, 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 uh, to end the filibuster? Do you think that that is possible in this? I mean, it's certainly McConnell – has put a marker down saying, not on my watch. I think it's <clears throat> really interesting because, you know, you have this dynamic where the president, Biden, probably doesn't want them to, uh, which is an interesting sort of, uh, you know, that he wants them to be more, um, he would probably preferred if the Republicans kept the majority in the Senate. It's very strange when you have people like AOC out there dictating what their party leaders want. Um, and what, what direction they're going. And you have Bernie Sanders on the budget committee, which is, you know, we're all going to figure out what the budget reconciliation process means and how we can use that to push everything through that uh, that the Senate Democrats want to. So there's going to be a tension between the White House itself and the Senate and the House uh, and Congress. So, But I have a quirky um, solution for, for Joe Biden on that. Um, just came to me. Uh, it looked <laughs> like, you know, uh, Gail Manchin, as you know, religious freedom is part of my beat. Gail Manchin is the chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. She's uh, a candidate. I wrote about this for uh, the ambassador religious freedom to to uh, basically replace Sam Brown back in that position. And if he would appoint that uh, Gail Manchin, I don't think that uh, that he would uh, the Senator Manchin would go to the other party. I think that's how he keeps him on board, just like Trump. With McConnell, got Elaine Chao um, as his cabinet secretary. And, uh, you know, McConnell really kind of, we all knew McConnell felt about Trump. You know, McConnell is the ultimate establishment guy in Washington here. You know, now we have Elaine Chao. She she is resigning. She resigned from the uh, administration in a, huff, in a huge huff. But guess what? She's on the Kennedy Center board. She got that position in December. So, you know, don't feel sorry for um, for Elaine Chao and and. Senator um, McConnell, they're, they're going to be well taken care of. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's kind of interesting, both sides, if you saw Trump um, with McConnell, how they navigated that. The Republicans, the more Trump-supportive Republicans in the Senate wanted to push McConnell further, especially when it came to confirming uh, Trump's nominees in the beginning. And then the Democrats really, really slow walked that process. And people like Senator Lankford were saying, you know what, we need to eliminate recesses. We need to push the these Democrats to go farther because they were using this two-day rule and they were slow walking everything, but McConnell did not do it. He was really reluctant to. And now you have sort of the opposite dynamic going on with, uh, you know, now Biden's going to want to push his nominees through and is McConnell going to try to stop that process? He doesn't look like it. doesn't look like McConnell is, is really all that, um, opposed to allowing this new administration from forming. So I think it's interesting. Why I'm going to put that Gail Manchin thing out there. You know, that's my first idea for the administration. <laughs> Carl, that last word. 
Well, you know, Susan brings up an interesting point. You you want you want unity? Okay, maybe that's not quite the right word. But you want comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy. Um, one thing you do is you let the president form his government. And the Democrats mm-hmm. didn't really do that with Trump. Um, and Trump didn't really do it. He was very slow to make nominations. He nominated people who, you know, nobody knew who they were. So, But the Democrats really blocked this. Schumer actually voted against confirming Elaine Shaw, Schumer himself, the Democratic mm. majority leader, the Democratic Party leader. So... One way you could improve relations between the two parties, and I think lower the temperature in Washington, is for the Republicans in the Senate to say, and McConnell will have to do it, this guy won the election. McConnell said that. He said it when it counted. Well, the way to back up that is to say, all right, and he gets to choose his government. The the Supreme Court judges are another matter, but his cabinet officials, he can pick who he wants. And we should abide by that. And, and next time we elect a president, we should demand that. To me, that would go a long way toward making government work again. And I'm going to steal the last word. And they have so far. I mean, right? Haynes was was confirmed as the DNI. Lloyd Austin got his waiver. Um, ironically, that was one of the things that Jen Psaki cited as, as an outreach <laughs> and bipartisanship on behalf of the administration is that Republicans are voting for his nominees, which is... Crazy, but but it is true, and I think so. Republicans are um, have been going along and are giving him this sort of deference and leeway to to with with a lot of these nominations, not all, but most, and and so we'll see how that plays out. But I think that is a you know that is a it's a it's a positive, hopeful sign that in Joe Biden's words, not everything's going to be you know a knockdown, drag out fight in Washington, but. At least for the moment, there's the, you know, the honeymoon is is still happening. (laughs) Well, Tom, this is great because we're having a nice, hopeful last statement from Tom Bevan. That rarely happens on this show. We'll take that to the bank. Anyway. Amen and a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, well, we're going to leave it there. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, January 22nd. I want to thank Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, Susan Crabtree for being here. We'll be back next week. If you want to find out more, you can check us out at www.realclearpolitics.com. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.